tonight in our study of the person and character of God, we are going to consider one of the most mind-boggling facets of the person of God, and that is his triunity. I realize that for most Christians, the term that is used more often is trinity, and that is not a bad term, but trinity only emphasizes the threeness aspect, whereas the term triunity emphasizes both three and one, which is what we're going to be talking about. So I typically use the term triunity, though occasionally we'll use, slip and use the term trinity, not that it's a, a bad term. It's impossible for us to comprehend how there can be one God and yet three persons. But it's imperative that we not ignore the subject just because we can't understand it. One Quaker said this, If you ignore the doctrine of the Trinity, you will lose your soul. But if you try to completely comprehend it, you will lose your mind. That says it as about as well as it can be said. Now, let me give you two statements right here at the beginning of the message, and then we'll develop them in some detail. Here are the two statements. Number one, there is but one God whose nature is undivided and indivisible. Statement number two, there are three eternal persons in one divine nature known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is in summary what the Bible teaches about the person of God. Let's consider each of those individually. First of all, there is but one God whose nature is undivided and indivisible. To begin our time in the Word, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and as has been the case for this series, because it's sort of a theological type of series, we're going to have to turn to a lot of passages, so just plan on doing that. Uh, if you have a, a Bible that you're going to be turning back and forth, you'll need to lick your fingers and turn quickly. Or if you have Scripture on some type of device, tablet, or phone, then it's a, a matter of just switching back and forth. But we will be going to a lot of passages. Uh, and our, our starting point is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 1, Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may, uh, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, and probably a number of you are familiar with this verse. It's called the Shema because of the Hebrew word Shema, which is the imperative form of listen, hear, hear this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is such a central statement, such a central verse in all of Hebrew Scripture. So much so that if you've ever been to Israel or in a Jewish home or in a Jewish building, you've probably noticed on the doorway it's a little uh, metal sort of scroll-like uh, feature that's attached. And inside there's a little piece of paper that's called a mezuzah. But inside, uh, uh, Orthodox Jews, and not only Orthodox Jews, a lot of Jews, even if they're not that religious, will touch that as they go by, kiss their finger, etc. And it has Deuteronomy 6.4. Usually that's the verse that's on the inside. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. There aren't many gods. There aren't three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one God. When Moses spoke these words, the children of Israel were in the midst of polytheistic societies. Many of the people in that area worshipped a multiplicity of gods. There was the God of the sun and the God of the rain and the God of the crops and the God of fertility. All these gods. So God wanted to make sure that the people of Israel understood and then all those who would hear the message that there is only one true God. By the way, that's one of the reasons why God did not detail the fact of his triunity in Hebrew Scripture. He hints at it in some places, as we'll see a little later, but he doesn't really spell it out in great detail because the main point he wanted the children of Israel to know was that there is only one true God. The uniqueness of the one true God is, in my opinion, the major theological thrust of the Old Testament. There is but one true God. Furthermore, this means that God does not consist of parts, nor can he be divided into parts. He is, he is one. But that doesn't mean God is a unit. He is a unity. Jesus affirmed this in Mark 12. So turn from Deuteronomy over into the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verse 28. Mark 12, verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving or seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all of the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And of course, he goes on to exhort soul, wholehearted devotion to the one true God. But notice, Jesus reaffirmed the uniqueness and oneness of God by quoting that passage. Jesus wholeheartedly agreed with the Hebrew Scripture that there is only one God, and, as we'll see in a minute, He claimed to be that very God. So there is one God. Moses strongly affirms it in Deuteronomy 6. Jesus reaffirms it here in Mark. Paul also taught the fact that there is only one true God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So past Acts, Romans to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, <coughs> verse 1. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore... Concerning the eating of things offered idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. Now, now, here's where our minds begin to short-circuit. In verse 6, Paul mentions one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Creator God. 
In our minds, one plus one equals two. Now, the Father and the Son are two distinct persons, but they are not two different gods. There is only one God. This is again affirmed in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So keep going to the right past Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 where Paul says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So again, Paul affirms that there is only one God little side note here. There are a couple passages we need to deal with at this point because they can be confusing. And the Mormon church uses one of these passages in an attempt to support some of their false doctrine about whether there is one true God or not. So let's just pause and deal with these two passages. Go back to the Gospel of John chapter 10. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 31. It says, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They got it. They knew what Jesus asserted and claimed. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Here in verse 34, Jesus quotes Psalm 82, 6. In your Bible, it's either in quotation marks, italicized, maybe both. It lets us know this is a quotation. Now understand what's going on here. They were going to stone Jesus on the basis of their law or the, uh, the Hebrew scripture. So Jesus turns to the law as support that his claims are not out of line. They're not over the top. They're not excessive. He quotes from Psalm 82. So let's go back to Psalm 82. Hold your finger here because we'll come back to, to uh, this passage in John. But go back to Psalm 82. And this is the psalm from which Jesus quotes. Psalm 82, verse 1. We'll just begin reading at the very beginning of the psalm. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy, feed, uh, free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Now, maybe you notice that the opening verse mentions about God judging. It closes with a call for God to judge. And there is a statement in here to the judges of Israel. All of that's important to understand. 
These human judges, this is a psalm about God being the ultimate judge, human judges. These human judges were supposed to represent the divine will and word of God. They were supposed to be God's representatives. So in that sense, they could be called gods with a small g. God was addressing them in reference to their office as judges, as his representatives. He was not referring to, he was not addressing them in reference to their essence. The very fact that verse 7 makes reference to them dying like all other mortals is proof that they are not in any sense equal with the one and only true God. All right, this is the passage Jesus quotes from in John 10. So let's turn back there to see how Jesus uses this and what he says about it. So, Jesus claimed to be equal to the Father. They said, that's blasphemy. We're going to stone you. And then in verse 35, Jesus said, if he called them gods, to whom the word of God came. The word of God came to them, and they were supposed to use it to represent God. And the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world? Now notice what Jesus is saying. I started out in heaven. We're talking about human judges here on the earth who received the word of God. And scripture calls them gods with a small g. But I didn't come from the earth. I was in heaven. I was sanctified and sent from the Father into the world. And do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent in the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? The argument that Jesus makes here goes from the lesser to the greater. He is in essence saying this to them, and I'll just sort of paraphrase it. Don't I, the Messiah, deserve an even higher title than the mere human judges in Psalm 82? They were simply men of human origin who received the word of God, but I have been set apart and sent by the Father from heaven with the word of God. Doesn't that give me the right to be called the Son of God? There's an infinite difference between them and me. If they were called gods to whom the word of God came, then should not I have the right to call myself the Son of God since I came into this world as the word of God and with the word of God? That is the point Jesus is making here. He's saying, my claim is not out of line to call myself the Son of God. I came from the Father. He's not teaching here in this verse that we can become deity, which is what the Mormon cult teaches. That was the first lie all the way back in the garden when Satan told Adam and Eve they could be as God. Jesus was simply saying that if there's a sense in which representatives of God can be called gods with a small g, then surely it's not out of line for him to call himself the Son of God. So, the Bible is clear that there's only one true God. But, the Bible also teaches that there are three eternal persons in one divine nature known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God hinted at this in Hebrew Scripture. Go back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1, probably don't even need to turn to it because virtually everyone present can probably quote this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the reason why I have us turn to this is because the word used for God here in verse 1 is the Hebrew plural noun Elohim. Some Hebrew scholars say it's 
a plural of majesty, which is certainly true, but also some say that in this plural noun used very many times in Hebrew Scripture, Elohim, there is room for later revelation to expand, to give us understanding that this one true God consists of three persons. So the very first verse in the Bible may hint at the plurality of God by using a plural noun. Down in verse 26, we have plural pronouns used. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Three times there. Let us, our, and our. Then a few chapters later, over in chapter 11, there's another occurrence of a first-person plural pronoun. Chapter 11, verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone. (coughs) They had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they purpose to do will be withheld from them. Come, watch this, let us go down... Let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Another plural pronoun. So there is implicit evidence in Hebrew Scripture to the plurality of God, implicit, but in the New Testament there is explicit evidence. Let me show you several examples. Go to the first book of the New Testament, from the first book of Hebrew Scripture, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 3, a very familiar story to most, the baptism of Jesus. And you will remember what happened on this occasion, Matthew 3, verse 13. And Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, (coughs) saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here in this story we see three distinct persons. The Son was baptized. The Spirit descended like a dove, and the Father spoke from heaven. By the way, this, as well as other passages, is proof against a false doctrine known as modalism. Modalism teaches that there is one God, which is true, and only one person, which is not true, and this one person plays three different roles, which is not true. Modalism says, well, this one person played the role of the Father during the Old Testament time. Then he came to earth and played the Son during the New Testament time. Then he ascended after the resurrection, and he came back again as the Holy Spirit. That's modalism, and the Bible does not teach that. 
In this passage, you see three distinct persons. Turn over to chapter 28 of the same book, another very familiar passage known as the Great Commission. Chapter 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice that name is singular. There is one name, but there are three persons. John 14 is another passage that refers to three distinct persons. John 14, verse 16. Listen as I read it. I will pray the Father. This is Jesus talking. I will pray the Father. He will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus says, I will pray to the Father. So two distinct persons there. He will send another helper, the Spirit of truth. Again, three distinct persons. 1 Corinthians 12 is another example. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 says, There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. That's a reference to Jesus. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. So there Paul goes from the Spirit to the Son to the Father in three consecutive verses. 2 Corinthians 13 is an interesting one. Turn over to the last part of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. In this benediction, the very last verse says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Here the three members of the Trinity are linked together on an equal plane, yet they're not put in the order we usually think of. I mean, how do we usually think of it? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's not the order here. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with the Son. The love of God. Up to, he goes to the Father. Communion of the Holy Spirit to the Spirit. So, order doesn't matter when it comes to the issue of their essence, because they're all equal. You can say, Father, Son, Spirit, Spirit, Son, Father. As in this case, Son, Father, Spirit, doesn't matter when, it's, when you're referring to essence because they are all equal. One more example, all the way near the end of the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 says in verse 2, elect, this is, Peter's audience, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. There again is a reference to three distinct persons, and again the order is different than we usually think of, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because here the order is Father, Spirit, Son. So if we put all the information together, we come up with this. There is but one God existing in three persons who are equal in substance but distinct in subsistence. Let me say it again. There is but one God existing in three persons 
who are equal in substance but distinct in subsistence. Now what do we mean by the phrase equal in substance but distinct in subsistence? That means they are equal in their essence, they are equal in their nature, and they hold the same attributes in common, but they are not the same person. If you will remember back to some of the messages in this series, the earlier messages, you may remember we talked about the essence, nature, and attributes of God. God is spirit. He is self-existent. He is eternal. He is immense. He is immutable. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is holy. He is righteous. He is good. He is loving. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is kind. He is patient. We looked at all that in some detail as we probe the essence and attributes of God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all possess all of those aspects of essence and all those attributes of deity fully. They have them all in common because the Father, Son, Spirit, or whatever order you want to say, Spirit, Son, Father, Son, Spirit, Father, they have them all in common because they are equal in substance. There is no subordination or inferiority of essential being within the Godhead. Let me say it another way. Full, undiminished deity belongs equally to each member. For example, and I specifically use these examples because these are ones that, that you hear people make uh, misstatements about. So listen to the examples. The Spirit is not less powerful than the Father or the Son. The Spirit is not more omnipresent than the Son. The Son is not more loving than the Father. They are the same in essence or substance. There is no subordination or inferiority of essential being within the Godhead. However, however, there is a logical or relational subordination. The Son submitted to the Father in the Incarnation. The Spirit submitted to the Father and the Son when He descended. But that has nothing to do with divine essence, the divine essence they each possess. What I'm trying to stress is this. Don't, in your mind, because we usually say Father, Son, Spirit, don't have a pecking order thinking the Father's the most God. You know, He's the, he's the real big. Then the Son, He's God too, but He's, you know, a little less. And then the Spirit's down here. Don't have that concept. When you're thinking of divine essence, let me give an illustration. In the family structure, God has established a relationship in which a wife submits to her husband. Does that mean a wife is inferior to her husband? Not at all. In fact, in, in many cases, the wife is superior in various capacities. She may be more intelligent. She may be more organized. She may, whatever the case may be. But the issue isn't inferiority. The issue isn't superiority in essence. The issue is function and relationship. That's the way it is in the Godhead. The Father is not superior in essence to the Son or the Spirit. But there is a relational subordination within the Godhead. The Bible attributes full, undiminished deity to all three members. They are all three equally God. Let me show you this in abbreviated form. Time won't allow us to develop it completely. 
but we've done that in the past in individual messages on the Son and the Spirit. But just a, a few examples to show. The fa- first of all, the Father is God. The Father is God. Look at John chapter 6. Go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Here in this verse, Jesus clearly refers to the Father as God. God the Father. As a side note, those who don't believe in the deity of Christ really have a hard time with this verse because if Jesus isn't God, then there would be no need to use the phrase God the Father. See what I mean? If there were no such thing as God the Son or God the Holy Spirit, then there would be no need to use the phrase God the Father. But here that phrase is used. And it clearly asserts the deity of the Father. Look at Ephesians 4, where we have another example, past 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians. Ephesians 4, verse 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and in you all. Here again is a clear attestation to the deity of the Father. The Father is God. And that's not a theological point that needs to be supported usually all that often because that's not where mistakes are made and false doctrine is propagated. It's usually in relation to the Son and the Spirit. So let's move on to the second aspect of this. The Father is God, but that's not all because Jesus is also God. Now remember, he's not the same person as the Father, but he is equal in essence. He is called God in several places in Scripture. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And just so that we know for sure of whom John is speaking, a few verses later, he will say in John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's a clear reference to Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and in John 1.1, the Word was God. Pros ton theon in Greek. Some say you could even translate that face-to-face with God. Jesus was face-to-face with God because he is co-equal with the Father. In John 20.28, Thomas referred to him as my Lord and my God. In Titus 2.13, it says that we are to be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's called God. Hebrews 1.8 quotes the Father this way, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So Jesus is repeatedly called God. In addition, he also claimed to be God. Contrary to what the cults teach, I don't know how many conversations you've had with people involved in cults, but I've had innumerable, and and one of the comments I've heard most often is, well, you can't show me one verse where Jesus just says, I am God. So in other words, what they're saying is, if you can't find that statement, I am God, 
then any of his claims of deity aren't valid. Jesus did claim to be God. In John 5, he claimed to be God, so the Jews wanted to stone him. In John 8, he claimed to be God, so the Jews wanted to stone him. In John 10, he claimed to be God, so the Jews wanted to stone him. In fact, look at that passage again. Go back to John 10, because there's one other detail that's important to note. John 10, verse 30 we started reading earlier in verse 31, the Jews took up stones to stone him. But in verse 30, this is what prompted it. I and my Father are one. It's interesting to note that the word one in this verse is in the neuter gender and not the masculine. Jesus wasn't claiming to be the same person as the Father, which could have been maybe assumed if he used the masculine here, but he used the neuter gender because he was claiming to be one in essence, not one and the same person, but one in essence. And the Jews knew exactly what he was claiming, which is why, why verse 31 says they took up stones again to stone him. And later they state, stated it very specifically. They said, you were stoning you for blasphemy, verse 33, and because you being a man make yourself God. They knew he was claiming to be equal in essence with the Father. So Jesus is called God. He claimed to be God. He possessed the attributes of God. For example, a couple of chapters earlier in chapter 8, verse 58, <coughs> Jesus affirmed his eternality when he said, Before Abraham was, I am. And again, verse 59, they got it. They took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself. Hebrews 13, 8 says Jesus is immutable when it says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Jesus is called God. He claimed to be God. He has the attributes of God. He performed the works of God. John 1.3 says all things were made by him. Colossians 1.16 says the same thing. Jesus created. According to Mark 2, Luke 5, Luke 7, he forgave sin, which only God can do. In John 11, he raised the dead, which only God can do, or the power of God. He performed the works of God from a myriad different angles. The Bible teaches the deity of Jesus Christ. He is called God. He has the attributes of God. He claimed to be God. He performs the works of God. He is God. But the Spirit is also God, equal in essence with the Father and Son. Don't view the Holy Spirit as inferior in his essence. Go back to Psalm 139, back in Hebrew Scripture, Psalm 139. A greatly loved psalm. And in verse 7, the psalmist says, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? It's not that he is trying to get away. That's not his point. His point is, I don't have to be concerned that I may go somewhere and then I'm out of your presence. I, I don't have to worry about that. Where can I go from your spirit? That is an affirmation of the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit. He's everywhere present. You can't go anywhere and escape the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, because he is God. He is omnipresent. In fact, he is specifically referred to as God in Acts chapter 5. And I want you to see this passage. It's a very important one to have in your mind, even if you don't have it memorized, to really know this passage. 
Because again, of interacting with people who will deny, if not the deity of the Son, they will deny the deity of the Holy Spirit. And this is a very key passage on the topic. Acts chapter 5, verse 1, But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now here's the important part about this passage. Notice that in verse 3, Peter says that they lied to the Holy Spirit. Look at it again. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then in verse 4, when he says it again, he says it in a different way. He says, while it remained, was it not, uh, not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. By lying to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. That is a clear statement of the deity of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the strong, in my opinion, one of the strongest passages in the New Testament because of how direct it is of an, uh, of an affirmation or an assertion of the deity of the Holy Spirit. You lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. I remember many years ago when I was a, a Bible college student back in Chicago, uh, I worked just down the street from Moody Bible Institute where I went to school. I worked at an armored car company. We, we uh, counted uh, money, you know, and transferred it to banks. And I was in charge of the coins. And all of the coins that came in from the tolls, all the toll booths around uh, the city of Chicago. So I would go in late in the afternoon when the drivers would bring in the big boxes of coins. And then I would have to dump them in a machine, sort them, and all of this. And there were literally every day there were millions of dollars in coins that would have to be sorted and sent to the bank and all of that. And one of the gentlemen with whom I worked was a Jehovah's Witness. And we became very good friends. We worked a lot of hours together, talked a lot, and... Of course, we knew we weren't on the same page theologically. So uh, one day, as after, when I came into work after uh, having classes throughout the day, uh, he said, uh, what, are you, what are you learning over there? What, what are you studying li- lately? And I said, wow, uh, in our theology class, we're, right now we happen to be studying the deity of the Holy Spirit. Well, I knew he didn't agree with that because in Jehovah's Witness theology, the Holy Spirit's not even a person. He's not even a person. He's a thing. He's an it. He's a force. So he's not a person. And if he's not a person, then he obviously can't be God. So I said, Dad, that's what we've been studying in theology class about the personhood and the deity of the Holy Spirit. And uh, he said, "Uh, you know, I, I don't go there. I don't believe that. And I said, well, let me see your Bible. And I hadn't checked this out in advance, so I was a little bit nervous to do this. But again, if you're familiar with the Jehovah's Witness cult, they use what is called the New World Translation. And it is a very intentionally butchered translation. The most famous butchered verse in their translation is John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and they translate it, and the Word was a, small g, God. It's a way to try to get around the deity of Christ. And it's a terrible translation. Even secular Greek scholars say that it can't be translated that way. But anyway... 
I hadn't checked it out, and I knew that the New World Translation butchered a lot of passages, but I also know that there were some they missed. So I was just hoping when I took his Bible that Acts 5 is one they missed. So I said, well, let me see your Bible. And so he handed me the New World Translation, and I opened it up, and I read Acts 5, verses 3 and 4, and it reads almost exactly like it does in our, whether, you know, NASB, New King James, NIV, or whatever. And so I said, look, look, verse 3, Peter very clearly says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4, he says, you lied not to men, but to God. How else can you explain that except that it's a reference to the deity of the Holy Spirit? I said, look, what's your explanation? I'll never forget this. This was like, what, 35 years ago, something like that. He took his Bible, looked at it. He read it, read verse 3, read verse 4. He put his hand up to his chin, shook his head, said, I'll get back to you on that one. That was 35 years ago. I still haven't heard from him. I never will hear from him because there is no other explanation. This is as crystal clear of a statement as there is in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit is God. He is a person, not a thing, not an it, not a force. He is a person because all three members of the triune Godhead are persons. So he is a person and he is God. So my point is this. The Bible teaches that there is but one God whose nature is undivided and indivisible. And the Bible teaches there are three eternal persons in one divine nature known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Furthermore, there is but one God existing in three persons who are equal in substance but distinct in subsistence. And some of you are saying, you've only confused me. I'm sorry, that's the best. I can explain it. If you ignore the doctrine of the Trinity, you will lose your soul. But if you try to completely comprehend it, you will lose your mind. But aren't you glad that God is bigger than you or I can completely grasp? We should expect to sort of reach a ceiling when we're grappling with this topic. We should expect to reach a point where we say, hold it, hold it. I'm kind of lost at this point. I I can't wrap my mind around. Exactly, because we're talking about God. We're talking about the triunity of God. He is bigger than you or I can grasp. He is bigger than you or I can adequately explain. If he weren't, then we'd all be in trouble. We would all be in trouble. Let's bow together and worship him together. Our Father, we know that your word teaches us that we can come to you, Father, through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, who intercedes for us just as the Son intercedes for us. We know that Paul says of the Spirit in Romans 8 that because we don't know always what to pray or how to pray, We don't have the big picture. We're not omniscient. That your spirit intercedes for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And so we understand at least somewhat, Father, that you and your Son and your Spirit are equal, co-equal, equal in essence, equal in nature. We also understand that you are distinct and you each 
Though you work together in perfect harmony, you each have unique roles in what you carry out here on earth. We understand from your word that it was your son, God the Son, who was our substitute, who died in our place. We know that it is the Spirit who draws us. But we also know from John 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so we see all of these statements in your word, Father, about who you are and who the Son is and who the Spirit is. And it, it is mind-boggling, it is thrilling for us to try to grasp, to try to get a handle on who you are. Help us to have clarity of thought, at least to the best of our human limitations, so that we don't see your Son, the Lord Jesus, or the Spirit as inferior to you, Father, in essence or in nature. May we hold strongly to the fact that you, Father, and the Son and the Spirit are co-equal. You are one in essence. There is no insubordination. There is no inferiority when it comes to essence. And yet, in your marvelous plan, there is this, insubordina- or this subordination when it comes to the issue of function. As you sent your Son and you and the Son sent the Spirit, so as we try to, to grapple with this things, these things, expand our understanding, expand our comprehension, because we recognize that we are in territory that is far beyond us. But thank you that you, Father, have revealed yourself. Your word has refu- revealed your Son and your Spirit to us. And we want to understand you as best we can, but not just understand. We want to worship you in all of your fullness worship you as the triune God, and cry out with the angels who say, holy, 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 affirming, Father, that not only are you the thrice holy God, but all three members of the Godhead, you, Father, and the Son and the Spirit, are all equally holy. Grant us greater understanding as we contemplate, as we meditate, and may our understanding prompt us and spur us to worship and adoration, even as we were singing earlier in songs about your triunity. This we ask in the precious and exalted name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.